Would you turn in your Bible tonight to Psalm 20, Psalm 20. Uh, this evening we're concluding our uh, summer series on the uh, Psalms, and hopefully, uh, Lord willing, we'll take it up again next summer. Uh, psalm 20, we'll read the entire uh, psalm, verse 1 through 9. Just to sort of set the outline of the psalm, the first five verses seem to be prayers offered by the Israelites, by the congregation, for David the king. Psalm Verses 6 through 8 seem to be David's response, and then Psalm 9 resolves the, uh, the song uh, with tying it back in uh, to verse 1 as well. Um, so let's uh, give our attention then to Psalm 20. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. May he remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices. May he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. May we shout, ever, may we shout for joy over your salvation and in the name of our God set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. O Lord, save the king. May he answer us when we call. I have to say that as uh, every time I come to a psalm and I originally read it as I'm getting uh, started with my studies, I'm, uh, the question always sort of strikes me, how, um, how does this relate to us today? It just so often the, seem, the psalms seem to be a bit removed from us, a bit remote. Uh, this, this here is a song, a prayer for King David as David prepares to go to war. Uh, if you remember, the, uh, Israel is surrounded by animosity, uh, by nations that, that don't like them being there and are constantly seeking uh, to uh, remove them from the land. So you have the uh, Philistines to the west along the, uh, the uh, sea. You have the Assyrians to the north, the Edomites, Moabites, and Ammonites to the east. And all of them are, uh, have animosity toward Israel, and so David is continually fighting. If you remember that chapter that talks about David's great fall into sin with Bathsheba, it begins in the spring of the year when kings go out to make war. Uh, it was an annual event of going out to protect the borders of Israel or expand the borders of Israel. War was a constant reality. And of course, this is true for Israel specifically because they are the, um, the target of the evil one. He knows who they are. They're God's chosen people. They're the ones that God has attached his name uh, to this, this nation. And the devil then obviously would make that a target of, of his attacks. And, and so I think we can see quite quickly that there would be some relevance for us today as, as the, uh, the New Testament Israel of God. We're the kingdom of God. We're the, the ones that God has attached his name to his church. 
And so as we, as we saw this morning, uh, the church is the target of the evil one. There's a, we are in conflict continually. But before we uh, really try to find uh, um, places where this psalm relates to us, I think it's important for us to first understand it in David's day. As we said, this is a prayer for King David as he's getting ready to go out to war. The first uh, five verses seem to be prayers of the people for David. Uh, Psalm, verses 6 through 8 seem to be David's response, and then 9 wraps it up. And so our outline is going to look like first the people's prayer, the first five verses, uh, then the, the king's prayer, verses 6 through 8, and then we'll look at the Christian's prayer. How do uh, we as Christians uh, come to Psalm 20? What truths are there here for us? Let's start then with the people's prayer in verses 1 through 5. Uh, it's very understandable that Israel would want to pray for their king. Uh, their lives are in his hands in the sense that David's success is their success and David's failure is their failure. Uh, their, their existence as a nation in one sense depends upon the success of David and his armies. And so as David and his armies prepare to go to war, this would be a prayer offered up by the Israelites. But not only is their success linked to David's success, but the name of God is linked to David. David is God's anointed king, and if David falls, if David fails, the name of God is uh, scorned in the world. The nations around will say that their gods made out of wood and stone have conquered the living God who made heaven and earth. So there's a lot on the line as the people pray. And note what they pray for. May the Lord, uh, may Yahweh, the covenant name of God, may he answer you in the day of trouble. May the God who's made covenant with you, King David, in, when, you're, when you're engaged in the conflict, may this covenant-making God keep covenant with you and answer you in the day of your trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. It's interesting that uh, we find in the Psalms uh, several times where the psalm is thinking about a time of trouble uh, that they speak of uh, the God of Jacob. If you remember Psalm 46, though the mountains be moved in the midst of the sea, right? Even then, we will not fear the war break out against us, all right? Though all sorts of calamities could happen, but the Lord is our fortress. The God of Jacob is our refuge. And why would it be that in, in, when the Israelites think of a time of trouble that they would uh, reflect on God as the God of Jacob? Well, I think there's a... There's a a biblical reason, there's a, a textual reason. Uh, back in Genesis chapter 35, verse 3, Jacob is, is making his way back towards home. It's later on in his life, the Lord has blessed him richly um, in spite of all of Jacob's conniving and scheming. Remember, he's the deceiver. But they're making their way back towards, towards Bethel. And this is what Jacob says in Genesis 35.3. Let us arise and go up to Bethel so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. The God of Jacob is the God who answers in the day of distress. And the God of Jacob is the God who does that even for scoundrels like Jacob himself. A God who's willing to go with Jacob is, can you imagine old man Jacob looking back over his life? 
He had been plotting and scheming and devising and deceiving his entire life. It's the way sort of he was in the world. And yet when he looks back, he realizes that all of his blessings have not come by uh, his deceptions. Uh, all of his, his griefs have come about by his deceptions. But the blessings have all become about by God's grace. And so you see Israel here then prays to the God of Jacob, the God who answers in distress, and the God of Jacob being the God then who keeps his word, blesses the most undeserving, the God who overcomes our sins, forgiving us, triumphs through our failures, and blesses us simply because he wants to. You see, when you're in a time of trouble, and you're appealing to God for his help, the thought will probably come to your mind, why should God help you? Who are you? And most likely, you see, you can say, well, this trouble, you could probably find reasons why you've been the cause of your trouble. You could, you could say, if I'd have only done this differently, if I hadn't done that, I wouldn't even be in this trouble. So why should God come and rescue you, not only when you don't deserve it, but when you got yourself into this mess in the first place? And the devil would say, you should, don't waste your breath asking God, a, a holy God, a, a righteous God. This trouble is very likely evidence that he is uh, he's punishing you. He's angry with you. Well, we say we can appeal to the God of Jacob, a God who blesses not on the basis of our merit. There is no merit. Jacob has no merit. But a God who blesses simply, purely because he wants to. That is an, that's an amazing thing to be able to say when you are in trouble and you know it's, it, it's because of your own failure, your own sin, your unbelief, your disobedience, whatever it might be. But yet you can, you can appeal to the God of Jacob and say, I pray to a God who's willing to help me not only, um, that, because not only in spite of the fact I don't deserve it, but I'm able to appeal to a God who has revealed that he is eager to bless me just because he wants to. Praise God, that's true. And so what a wonderful prayer for David as he goes out to war, that, that we can appeal to the God of Jacob. May he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. It recognizes that David does need help. But they're not appealing to their little uh, national deity that they've created. They're not appealing to, to, to Baal or Dagon or whatever little, uh, little idol may be set up in some dark temple someplace. May the Lord, Yahweh, maker of heaven and earth, the, the God of Israel, send you help from his sanctuary, his dwelling place on high, his eternal throne room where God himself exists and reigns. May God send you help from his very presence. May God take personal care for your protection and safety. That's a vastly different thing than praying um, with to some little little deity, some little God that you've made up. Uh, this is rooting David's protection and help in the, uh, the very presence and person of God himself. May he remember, verse 3, all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices. If you remember, David is an Old Testament saint, isn't he? And he is, uh, God has given his people in the Old Testament all these various uh, ceremonies and sacrifices and offerings um, 
which do not merit God's favor, but they point to the reality of Israel's sin and the truth of God's covenant promises to send a Messiah. And it is the means by which a believing Israelite lays hold then of the mercies of God and the promises of God as he comes and um, takes advantage of this way that God has provided through sacrifices and offerings. It's the, it's the nature, it's the context of the relationship. And so the, the people are praying, may the Lord remember, David, that you are in relationship with him. May he remember that you believe in him, that you trust in him, that you've been following the path that God has appointed to you through these um, sacrifices and offerings. Verse 4, may he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. Now, what was David's heart's desire? Well, David's heart's desire was to honor his God. If you remember when David went out to fight Goliath, you can read about it in 1 Samuel 17. Uh, David goes out to face uh, this great uh, weapon of war, this huge man. And David goes out, if you, boys and girls, you remember, just with his little slingshot and some stones. And yet David says to Goliath, before he kills him, This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand. I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth. Here's this kid saying these things to this un, unbeatable machine of war. How, what, what gives David his confidence? Well, because of why he's doing it. This is why he's doing it. That all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Because the nations are wondering. The armies of Israel are standing there quaking in fear before the enemies of God. They have no courage. They have no confidence in their God. And it, it infuriates David as he sees these men, the men of the church in that sense, the, the leaders of Israel, quaking in their boots so that God doesn't seem to be present or helpful. So David is driven by a passion that all the earth may know there is a God in Israel. That's his passion. That's his passion every time he goes out to battle against God's enemies. But there is a God, a living God, a mighty God, a saving God, a faithful God. His desire is for the glory of God. And the people then anticipate his victory in verse 5. May we shout for joy over your salvation, your deliverance. And in the name of our God, set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. They're, they're praying in faith that David would come back victorious and the, the victory banner would be unfurled and the people could rejoice that the Lord has heard and answered their prayers. And then we come to verses 6 to 8, the king's prayer. And now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will, answer, he will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. David exudes confidence. I know, I know the Lord saves his anointed. David, you see, has a keen sense of his calling. He has a keen sense of the fact that he is an anointed man. He, was, he did not seek this position. He was just out taking care of the sheep when Samuel shows up. And after going through all the other brothers, of uh, the sons of Jesse, Samuel says, no, there's, there's one more. There's got to be another one because the Lord said it's going to be one of your sons. Who's left? Well, there's David out in the fields. Go get him. I'm not going anywhere until he comes. David wasn't looking for this. God went looking for David. And God anointed David to be the king. God chose David, and that's David's confidence. 
The Lord saves his anointed. Those whom God has chosen and claimed as his own, the Lord will deliver them. He'll save them. Not one of God's anointed shall fall. If God is for them and has chosen them, they will succeed. He will answer them from heaven. He will save them with his right hand. And that's why David then professes his trust in the Lord. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. The nations around David trusted in their military machinery. They carefully calculated the the number of horses and chariots and and, um, whatever other instruments of war they had, and they matched that up against David's forces, and they were quite confident that they were going to be able to overthrow David. And so you'll find in uh, 1 and 2 Samuel, nations gathering their armies together so they're, they're absolutely sure that they have the military advantage and they go to war. But they're trusting in the wrong things. You see, horses stumble and chariots break down. Weaponry fails. But the Lord never, ever does. Remember remember in the days of Hezekiah when haughty Sennacherib came against Jerusalem and he's just mocking the the, the God of Israel. Has any of the gods of the other nations that we've defeated, have have they been able to help you, help, help them? No. So you think your God is going to be able to stand against this vast army, almost 200,000 men surrounding Jerusalem? How many men did it take for Hezekiah, for Hezekiah to defeat the mighty host of Sennacherib? It didn't take any. If you remember the story, if you remember what happened, the angel of the Lord swept through the camp and 185,000 Assyrians are put to death in one night. You see, the Lord saves, the Lord saves. And so David has this confidence. They will collapse and fall, but we will rise and stand upright. And so that's the prayer. A prayer for David, David's response of confidence. How does this now relate to our lives as Christians? Well, just two things I'd like to point out. First of all, we read this as those who know that we have a greater king who's accomplished a greater victory. Jesus lived Psalm 20. In a beautiful, beautiful way. If you just look at the words with me. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. Uh, Jesus was a man who lived his life depending upon the Father. There is a verse in Hebrews chapter 5. I'd like you to turn there if you have your Bible. Because I'm not sure it's a verse that uh, we think of. Or when we think about the ministry of Jesus. It's so easy to think of Jesus sort of just blithely, victoriously tromping through life because he was God. And yet Hebrews chapter 5 gives us a very different picture of the ministry of Jesus. Hebrews 5 verse 7. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. He learned obedience through what he suffered. Jesus, throughout his life, is offering up prayers and supplication with loud cries and tears. You ever think of Jesus that way, beginning his day when he goes off to pray? He's coming to the Father with loud cries and tears, to to him who's able to save him from death. Jesus lived his life that way. 
And Jesus received then help and support from the sanctuary of God. He received support from Zion. If you remember when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, and who was sent to help him, to care for him, to tend to him? Angels from God were sent to strengthen him, to encourage him. David, uh, Jesus lived upon the support that he received from God. Verse 3, may he remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices. The Lord heard him because of his reverence. We just read that. That Jesus had a relationship of, of, of obedience and faith in God, and God willingly then heard and answered him. May he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. What was Jesus' heart's desire? It was exactly the same as King David's. You can read about it in John chapter 12, where Jesus says, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. It's exactly the same desire that David has, but it, the, the, the unique, magnificent difference being David is trusting that God will magnify his name by protecting David. Jesus is asking the Father to glorify his name by sending him to death, by letting him go to the cross and, and to take up. So he says, and shall, I, shall I say, Lord, save me from this hour? No, that would not glorify my Father's name. Father, Glorify your name, and a voice thunders from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. That's his heart's desire. May, the, may he fulfill all your plans. And, and the wonder of it is, you see, that in Jesus' death and resurrection, all the saving, redeeming purposes of God are accomplished in Jesus Christ. The, the Israelites prayed as David was about to go into war. We pray to a victorious Jesus who's returned from that war victorious. Jesus has set in motion all the purposes of God in his death and resurrection. All the salvation of all of those who belong to him. Not a single one will be lost. Every intent of Jesus will be satisfied and fulfilled in his redemption. Everything is going to be made new. We get so used to the world as it is. But this is not as it was meant to be. This, there should be a, a groaning in your heart. You can read about it in Romans chapter 8. That creation itself is groaning with a longing for the redemption of the sons of God to participate with us in a new heaven and a new earth. But that is going to be accomplished. Jesus' plans will be fulfilled because Jesus Christ is victorious. And we live today shouting for joy over your salvation in the name of our God, setting up our banners that's where we live today. And yet, we, it's hard. It's painful at times. Uh, and that's where we as Christians can take up this prayer on our lips as uh, under the banner of the victory of Jesus Christ, and we can make this our prayer. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. It just reminds us there will be days of trouble. This is, not a, this is not a time where we just live from glory to glory. This is a day where there will be sickness. There will be sadness. There will be times of despair. There will be times of grief over sin. May the Lord answer us in the day of trouble because, you see, we have a Savior. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. 
Because in times of despair, there's temptations. There's temptations to doubt. There's temptations to give way to worry, to give way to fear. There's temptations to, to judge that God is not being faithful, that God is not being fair. And we're praying, may the name of the God of Jacob protect you, the God who preserved unworthy, undeserving old Jacob. May that God be faithful and protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary, the very dwelling place of God. May he remember all your offerings. And that's the beauty of being a Christian. We don't take our obedience before the throne of God when we pray. We take the obedience of Jesus Christ before the throne of God. And that we can have confidence then on the basis of what Jesus has accomplished that all of our prayers are going to be answered. Hebrews 10, 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace in our time of need. Isn't it amazing that when we pray to God, we can acknowledge the truth. Lord, we don't deserve you to answer. Uh, but, but we come in the, in the name of Jesus Christ. We come under the banner of our Lord. And on the basis of his sacrifice, we ask that you will hear and receive our prayers. Verse 4, may he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. Uh, every child of God has desires of your heart. Every child of God has things that you wish were different in your own life, in the lives of those you love. Uh, maybe in your family, uh, maybe friends. It, 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 but there are things that burden you, things that you're praying about if you're, if you're a child of God. And one of the, one of the um, difficulties, one of the challenges, one of the greatest challenges to a, to a person of faith is when God doesn't seem to be answering those prayers. I have listened to a sermon on this text by uh, Jeff Thomas from, uh, from England. And in his sermon here, make, he, on this text, he makes the wonderful point that God takes our prayers and he answers them uh, so that even if he doesn't give us the specific thing that we're asking for, he gives us the deeper thing that we long for. Let me, let me just read a short quote from that. Thomas says, We pray to a God who can discern the prayer within the prayer. He hears the words we say, yes, but he also understands the heart cry and the hidden desires that lie underneath our prayers. He can give us the substance of what we ask for, even while refusing the form they take. That is, he can say yes to our deepest desires, even while he says no on the surface. Thus, we get what we truly desired, even though it's not what we asked for. And he quotes um, a, a poem by a man named Henry Viscardi that captures that thought. Let me just read that to you. Viscardi writes, I asked God for strength that I might achieve. I was made weak that I might learn humbly to obey. I asked for health that I might do greater things. I was given infirmity that I might do better things. I asked for riches that I might be happy. I was given poverty that I might be wise. I asked for power that I might have the praise of others. I was given weakness that I might feel the need of God. I asked for all things that I might enjoy life. I was given life that I might enjoy all things. I got nothing that I asked for, but everything I hoped for. Despite myself, my unspoken prayers were answered. I am among all men most richly blessed. Maybe this evening you're in a place where the Lord doesn't seem to be answering your petitions but we can have the confidence because Jesus Christ is at the right hand of God 
And because we're praying on the basis of all that he has done for us and promises to us that God is at work giving us what we hope for, even if at this moment he doesn't give what we ask for. I love what Thomas says, uh, we are the focus of a loving son and a loving spirit as they both whisper our names in the ears of our loving father. is that a great thought? The loving son and the loving spirit whisper our names and our needs in the ears of a loving father. You see, we can have, because of Jesus Christ, the confidence of David, we know that the Lord saves his anointed. He saves his chosen ones. Jesus says, no one can snatch them out of my hands. There might be times when it seems like that's exactly what's taking place, but Jesus has made his promise. Paul says in Romans 8 that those whom he foreknew, he predestined, those he predestined, he called, those he called, he justified, and those he justified, he also glorified, and there's not a weak link in the entire chain. The Lord saves his anointed. Who will rob God's chosen, God's anointed of the heaven that God's son for my own to my faith is given. You see, friend, if you are a Christian, you are the anointed of God, the chosen of God. The Holy Spirit of God has been placed upon you as a guarantee of what is yet to come, a guarantee that God loves you, delights in you, that God has incredible purposes and plans for you in a new heaven and a new earth. And God is working all of his sovereign wisdom and skill as hard as it might be to believe right now to accomplish more than you could ask or imagine. That's what the gospel promises to us. That's what it means to be the anointed of God. The Lord saves his anointed. He saves perfectly. Not only successfully, but perfectly. He doesn't just barely get us across the line because God is a gracious, sovereign God. He does all that he does so that we arrive as we ought. And so we trust in him. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Friends, that is a distinguishing mark then of a, of a Christian. We live in a world where people trust in all kinds of things. As Americans, we are tempted to place our trust in our military. Do not place your trust in a military. Weaponry fails. The Lord our God will not fail. People place their confidence in economic forecasts or, or just business uh, acuity. Uh, some trust in their individual abilities. Some people trust in their intelligence. Some trust in their beauty. Some trust their work ethic. Others trust in their friends and their family. And yet we need to know that all of these will fail you. None of these things will be able to help you when you face your ultimate enemy and you will face him. There will be a moment when you are facing death itself, whether it be in, in a sudden instant or where you're slowly languishing, languishing on your deathbed. But when you are in that moment, none of these things will support you. None of these things will comfort you. None of them will deliver you. None of them will give you victory and hope and peace and confidence. Only one thing can. The name of the Lord our God. That's it. Everything that God, has done, that, that God is in his character, in his faithfulness, in his promises, and everything that God has accomplished in Jesus Christ for you, that is the only thing that will stand when everything, absolutely everything else falls away. It's a great example of that. If you remember the story of Jim Elliott, Jim Elliott and his four friends, uh, they gathered together on the evening of January 7. They had a meal together because the next day the five men were going to head into the jungle and make 
contact with a new tribe, the Akua tribe, in the hopes of beginning a gospel work there. They knew it was potentially dangerous, but they trusted in the name of the Lord their God. And so they closed their evening together singing the song, We Rest on Thee, Our Shield and Our Defender. We go not forth alone against the foe, strong in thy strength, safe in thy keeping tender. We rest on thee, and in thy name we go. And they went, and they landed, and made contact, and then men burst out of the jungle with spears, and all five were killed by the Akua Indians. What happened to safe in thy keeping tender? The mission seemed to be a total failure. But, of course, it wasn't a failure at all, was it? It was victory in every way. It was victory for the mission of God because God used their death to spur thousands of young men and women to enter the mission field and give their life to the cause of Christ as these men and women had. It was victory even for the Akua Indians as God ultimately used the great sacrifice of these men to show these, these uh, men who killed them the amazing love of Jesus Christ who gave his life for them even when they had put the Son of God to death by their sin. And that tribe became, uh, came many of them to faith in Christ. But most importantly, it was victory for these men themselves. They experienced on that very day what they had sung the night before because the last verse they sang goes like this. We rest on thee, our shield and our defender. Thine is the battle. Thine shall be the praise. When passing through the gates of pearly splendor, victors, we rest with thee through endless days. And that's our confidence. We're not promised Safety in the ways that we think of safety. We're not promised ease and peace and comfort and security. We're not promised those things at all. Jesus says, uh, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Peter says, do not be surprised when these trials happen as though something strange were happening to you. To this you were called. To this you were called. It's so important we arm ourselves with that truth that we've been called to the trials. We've been called to the heartaches. Uh, we've been called, but, we, but in that calling, we can have the confidence that there's a God who hears us. There's a God of Jacob who answers us. There's a God that you can fall on and, and depend upon, a God that you can trust in. And at the end of your life, when you look back, you will not see a single misstep made by your Lord and God. Not a single place where he could have done a little something different, a little, something a little better, maybe something a little less painful. At the end of it, you will give him all the praise, all the glory through endless days as we rest in him. May God grant that comfort, that peace, that confidence to your heart as you continue to walk this road that God has called you to. Let's pray. Oh, God in heaven, we thank you that the God of Jacob is our fortress. We are so often like Jacob. We depend upon our abilities, our plans, our insights, our wisdom, and yet, Lord, all of it fails. But you are the God who answers us in our distress. And we need to remember that. Father, you know the breaking hearts in this room tonight. You know those, Lord, you've called to hard providences. And Lord, you know uh, those who uh, are difficult providences just around the bend. We don't see it yet, but 
but you've determined that this is the best way for us to have the best and most joy forever. And so, Lord, we are, we are in your hand, and we thank you for that. I thank you, Lord God, that in the time of our trouble, we can cry out to the God of Jacob and know that you'll hear us, that you will not forsake us. The Lord saves his anointed. And I thank you that because of Jesus, we have the Son of God and the Spirit of God whispering into our loving Father's ear, and you will not deny them. Father, what an amazing thing that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have conspired together to rescue us and save us, to deliver us, to bless us beyond telling. And so, Lord, help us to trust in you then today and tomorrow and this week, to trust in you implicitly, to lean upon you. Give us, Lord, great faith, even in the presence of tears. And we ask, Lord God, that you would help us to stand so that Jesus Christ is made... um, evidently precious and valuable to us and that our lives could bear testimony. There's a God in the church today and he's good and we depend on him. May all the glory go to him in Jesus' name, amen.